0: This podcast is supported by VIPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. I'm Jess Noonan and I'm joined by Peter Jewell and this is the Planning Exchange Podcast. Today we have the pleasure of interviewing one of the planning great doyens of Victoria, Tim Biles. Tim was actually our second interview back when we started in 2014. Since then, the world has changed substantially and no one saw this coming. The impacts of the global COVID-19 pandemic are still being understood, but it does seem clear that this crisis will make a significant mark on cities, physically and socially, that will echo for generations. Just as 9-11 marked a turning point, so will the lockdowns of the 25th of March. We will today be discussing with Tim the prognosis and we are all peering into the unknown. Tim has 40 years' experience in town planning and urban design throughout Victoria and is a recognised leader in these fields. He provides planning, urban design advice, and also delivers expert evidence to VCAT and planning panels. Tim was a director of Message Consultants who re- recently joined forces with Ratio Consultants. Our listeners may know Ratio from a wonderful interview we also did with Colleen Peterson back in 2018. Welcome to the show, Tim.
1: Thanks, Jess. Thank you, Peter.
2: See so you again, Tim. Uh, Tim, there's a quote from the Planning Minister in New South Wales: "From the Great Fire of London to the bubonic plague outbreaks in the early 20th century in Sydney, advances in urban planning have their genesis in concerns about sanitation and public health." Discuss, and it's a it's a pleasure because listeners, Tim was once one of my lecturers at RMIT many years ago, <laughs> so it's nice to be able to put questions to him.
1: Well, Peter, you'll be pleased to know that I, I have, do have a copy of uh, Lewis Keeble's Principle, Principles and Practice of Town Planning here, just in case we need to go, go, go back to that. But going to the quote, to Stokes's quote, um, the, those health issues were really, in a sense, they were caused by the need for physical infrastructure. It was a need for running water, reticulated clean water and disposal of waste, sewage in particular. Um, and that in cities today, or certainly Australian cities, has been dealt with <laughs> and that's it. So the, the changes that we're likely to see, I think, will be um, less able to be seen as physical responses as much as they will be um, just changes in behaviour and changes in the way in which uh, people organise their lives. So it'll play out in a different, if you like, it'll be a different playbook than the playbook that Lewis Keeble talked about when I was trying to teach you how to be a town planner. yeah. So, so there will be there will be different different changes.
2: Tim, the flattening of the economy associated with the lockdowns has caused a deep recession with millions either underemployed or unemployment. Many businesses have been destroyed or on their knees. The economy has been trashed. How should planning react on a first principle basis to this situation? Um, do you think it would be a good pivot point to, from for planning to? support enterprising culture and the city?
1: What do you think? Well, I, Peter, I think that that, that is critical. And um, we have, because I think the country and Victoria in particular has enjoyed a very good economy for a long time, um, the nature of our planning has become regulatory and controlling to a large degree. I mean, there's been a lot of thinking about the shape of cities and the shape of Melbourne, et cetera, but a lot of the work that planners do day to day is a regulatory role and um, a lot of that regulation, you know, I scratch my head sometimes thinking why on earth am I writing about this? Why are my colleagues writing about this? This is just common sense. so change of change of land use that's often subtle uh, should be encouraged. You could turn yourself inside out to persuade a regulatory authority that it's satisfactory. So, in the recession we had to have last time, courtesy of uh, Paul Keating, um, there was the, the Kennett government in Victoria did shake up the system. Brought in the VPPs, as I recall, and restructured things. So there is that opportunity to say, look, how much of this stuff is really necessary, and how much of it should we review? And I'm not. Um, that's not to say that um, well-founded uh, regulation should be thrown out because it shouldn't. But um, there is there, there's a there's a need for planners, I think, to also join the spirit of entrepreneurialism that will probably prevail after this. Uh, Tim, I I
2: read that the unemployment rate in the States is is approaching 25%. And one commentator just said, you know, the answer is less rules. (laughs) And that's a very American approach. And I know we're probably more conservative, but I, I think there's a view that to help things you need to maybe, as you're saying, pull back a little bit.
1: Well, um you, you know the resp- <laughs> the response of government is always you know cutting red tape invariably ends up actually adding more red tape i mean mm. the, the example I've got is one example was um uh, you if you were asked for um further information uh you you, you could do that essentially in your own time and sometimes it takes a while to collect further information in a planning application, especially those that are complex. So the example of cutting red tape several iterations ago was to introduce a regulation that said, well, if you don't respond within a month, you have to write a letter requesting that you get an extension. So that didn't cut red tape. It just involved consultants in more to and fro and public servants in more to and fro. It was just in my view, complete and utter waste of time. But um, fortunately, fortunately, the Minister hasn't tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to become his advisor, so we don't have to worry about that.
0: I think it's an interesting time, even, that we're talking about task forces to fast-track planning decisions currently. I mean, sort of going back to what you were saying, Tim, that the fact that we need a process to get through the processes that we've got. To actually stimulate the economy is that do you think a sign that things are too complicated or is it is it broader than that is it political is it is it multifaceted?
1: well I think Jess you, you look you always need there all needs to be there need to be standards and there need to be there needs to be regulation around these things um, there probably needs to be less fear about what alternatives? More exploration of what alternatives are good, and with and how they should be explored. And there are times when you, you need a strong bureaucracy, need a strong intelligent bureaucracy that's capable of cutting through. If you don't have good people in bureaucracy, very very difficult to make things work as government. But there are times when I think um, there's not a lot of courage in bureaucracy. I probably said this in 2014, did I? Um, and it's because they, they, they're cowed. They're, they're neutered and neutralised and they're not allowed to speak. And yet there's some, there's some very good intellects there and you really want to hear from them. But there's no opportunity. And You know, how many times do we go to Vipler seminars where senior public servants aren't really allowed to express an opinion if it's not consistent with the policy that's out there at the moment, and that's a shame.
0: Tim, um, I guess the other thing that is probably going to come out of this is the impact on the development industry as a result of a massive fall in immigration. Um, Mm. how How do you see that affecting the development industry?
1: Well, it'll certainly it'll certainly cut the quantum. It'll start, cut the quantum, and um, uh, it, there'll be re, recalibration around that. It's been. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm uh, probably a pro-immigration person. I think that it's been very good for Australia. It's built its diversity and its strength, um, but there's still plenty to. For planners to do um, beyond just processing permits for townhouses and apartment buildings, um, it it will it will probably mean that uh, people lose their employment. Some people will lose their employment, and that it's uh, you don't have to have me saying it's difficult to create a job. It's easily to easy to kill it off.
0: Just um, following on from that, what do you see the impact being in terms of the density that we're seeing in our cities? I mean, I think there's been a lot of talk about, you know, is this the end of high-rise living? Is this the um, the genesis or the, the thing that we needed to really promote the medium density in field development that we're perhaps not seeing as readily throughout Melbourne? How do you see that?
1: i don't i don't think it will make it it may there may be a glitch there may be a, a decline for a period of time as a result of the, the your earlier comment about immigration and and also the lack of capital you know people are just if there's seemingly no demand if no immigration and no demand then people in, in times of very scarce capital availability they're not going to put that money up and risk it, so it'll, there'll be a decline. But I can't see how that will continue. Will, will play out in the long term. I think we'll, there'll always be um, a quest for higher density.
2: And Tim, one of the things is we a lot of people are making commentary. <clears throat> excuse me on the on the impacts of COVID nineteen, but a lot of the data there's not a lot of clarity on data. So I read the other day that in New York you know they now they're following people who get the get the infection and they're asking them the questions and a very small amount caught it on public transport and also the rate the general rate of infection there is
1: 20% very high
2: and only 12% of frontline health workers had it so a lot of the things we've been hearing about when the data is tested is actually contrary. So a lot of people are saying there's going to be fleeing from high density because of, but if you present the information to people like you're talking about, and a lot of these myths that are being created might be dispelled, I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I, I, Peter, I, I, think you're, I think you're right about that. It's, um, um, look, I'm, I'm obviously not a scientist, but we would hope that in this age, we would use our skills to collect that sort of information, interpret it, interpret it, and 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 make judgements around that. Um, we'd be just silly not to do that. Um, and I think there was an article in the paper yesterday or the day before saying basically it's not the density of living; it's the the the, the density within the within the building itself, within the within the apartment building. So if you've got two bedrooms, you've got ten people living in it, you've probably got a problem. You have one anyway, I suppose, but um that's that's more the issue.
2: Tim Milton Friedman believed that the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. I mean, that's just yeah. sort of, you know, it's just like, you know, what what's available? Where are the new ideas coming from? And could could COVID be a chance to Shake up the approach to city design and development.
1: Well, I it, I I think it's quite amazing at the number of well commentators and ideas that are bubbling up at the moment. You could, everywhere you look, you can I look on my you know my phone feed and there's something about it. The news every night is full of stuff about well, firstly what are the consequences, but also it's, what's coming out is how people are responding. Um, Every newspaper you pick up is full of stuff and your social the social media is is also full of ideas that people have about how you might deal with this. So um I don't think there's any we we're fortunate in this country that that there has always been that I think that's that respect for ideas. sometimes it morphs into. Uh, culture wars, but there's always been respect for for good ideas that are well based, and they get backed. So I, I can't see that that there will be um, any lack of of um, any lack of opportunity to drill into those sorts of things, Peter.
2: And on on that point, Tim, you know, there's design competitions for new buildings, and a lot of people say that design competitions bring out the best. Why not competitions for new planning policy? So, so uh, it's just a scenario. We've got this area or this is what we want to achieve from a broader perspective. Mm. Mm. Let's not create a draft policy. Let's just say, okay, here's what we after. You put it together and then we'll put it out for con- consult.
1: Mm. Um, well, it, uh, it's, that, I think that's a very good idea, Peter, And because, the, again, there is some... Very, there's some very interesting ideas that people have about movement and transport. I don't know if you were at the last Veikler conference, and there were there was a, uh, a side talk by a group of transport people about how they were going to deal with electric cars and all sorts of things. And in many respects, I thought it was the, one of the most interesting contributions to that to that conference. And Department of Transport have published an interesting document. People I'm working with have just done a, entered a competition for um, improvements to micro-mobility. So, um, you know, how do you get people from, to travel five, how, when they're travelling five or ten kilometres and they're using a bicycle, how do you make that journey work more effectively for them? And they've, they've sent this. It's actually, it's actually a, um, a competition based in Las Vegas of all places uh, and we had to do a comparison with Nicholson Street in in Melbourne. But the ideas that came just out of our office, I thought, were really good. I'm not, not saying that. The, uh, and you, 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 if you, if maybe, Peter what you, and Jess, what you should be doing is putting off the podcast for a couple of weeks and uh, running a competition through Veetler.
2: What do you think, Jess? <laughs>
1: Great idea. <laughs> Tim she's, she's taking off her headphones already
2: Peter. <laughs> know, she's, she's a <laughs> lot, lot younger and fresher than me Tim um, <laughs> Tim there, there's talk about re-establishing manufacturing in Australia uh, yeah. are planners and, and you know it's one of those buzz things at the moment are planners able to assist in this approach and, and also how well are planners these days versed in the economics of business costs and priorities you know is it a back because when I did my planning there was a economics was a pretty important part of it in terms of understanding how things worked and inputs and, you know, all those things. Is it time for a bit of a reset back to basics for planners, do you think? And and specifically just talking about manufacturing.
1: Talk about, sorry?
2: Uh, Talking about manufacturing, you know, as the hot topic at the moment, becoming more self-reliant.
1: Well, if you go, you go back to that earlier comment about, you know, they couldn't get marmalade into jars because the jars were in China and the lids were in, in um, Taiwan, I think, um, and you think, well, we're, we're, no, they make glass out of sand. How much sand is there in this country? And they make lids out of metal. How much metal is there in this country? What are we doing? So I think there'll be a lot of that, um, as I say, recalibration where people are saying, Let, let's start doing some of this. And there was, a, there was another article in the paper about two weeks ago about uh, a woman who's now retired who explored, I think it was three or four scenarios of one was pandemic and the consequence on supply chains and how they would work and how they, if, if they failed, what would, they, what would the effect be for the country? And I think there's no question that people are now saying to themselves, well, you know, if I can't have my marmalade on my toast in the morning because I can't get a lid and a jar to put it in, we better do something about it. And obviously it would be, be more meaningful than that. Um, and we are, I, I, we're, we're not bad at finding places to do those things in our cities. Um, it's sometimes Clunky, but if there's purpose, you know. Today, the federal, the, the state government said, "Well, look, we know we've we're going to have an employment problem. We've got a housing problem, and I've forgotten what the budget is, but it's a colossal sum of money that's going into immediately having contractors find people that can go out there and renovate houses that need to be renovated and build new build new accommodation." Now, that's presumably. Oh, those house, that housing must be there and they must presumably have some sites to build these things and designs and all that sort of stuff if they want it to happen quickly.
2: Uh, to, Tim, I was, to me that suggests this idea of magical thinking, that you can, oh. that you can somehow, you know, you, you can join one thing and to the other thing. And, mm. and where there is so much skill involved in house construction and things like that. There is only so yeah. much capacity in the system to be able to yeah. achieve that. So the, uh, I think that you know this is my thought. The COVID thing is going to be the end of magic thinking. That sort of a more brutal, hard nosed approach from a long time ago might have to come back into play. About and also to do with people's expectations. Uh, look, Maybe i being being too, too harsh. Yeah.
1: No, no, I don't. I don't think you're being harsh at all. Because the the two significant things that are going to come out at the end of this will be, as I say, there's no capital. There's no capital in in the government coffers. They've got huge debts. And any government that's got any brains is going to be working to reduce that debt. But at the same time, they're going to have to keep get people employed. You don't get people employed if you don't seriously analyse the multiplier effect of the of the dollar that you're going to spend. So you've got, you know, if you, you're down to your last 20 bucks and you're hungry. You're not going to go to Monde for dinner, are you? <laughs> no, no. The,
2: the, <laughs> Jess, do you like v- Mon?
0: I was going to say I'd gladly spend my last $20 in de Monde. <laughs> Go out and style, eh? (laughs) I (laughs) say.
1: Well, there's something in that (laughs) gist.
0: So, Tim, um, one of the things we sort of started to touch on earlier was about the sort of macro and micro responses that we're likely to see um, in design moving forwards. What do you you think about that? Are you seeing um, that there's going to be a greater reliance or strategic value placed on things like open space and pathways and connections? Or what, what are your predictions in that space?
1: I think, uh, Jess, in the methods of transport, there will be, again, there will be recalibration, particularly for people who've got relatively easy journeys. I mean, we're lucky in Melbourne that it's sort of flat, flat terrain, you know, we're not like we're negotiating Switzerland here. So it's relatively easy to ride a bike. We didn't have electric bikes 20 years ago, 15 years ago didn't have electric scooters. Um, we've certainly, in our inner city councils now, Melbourne City Council is seeing a will to remove um, cars and put people into other forms of movement. So I think there will be a change to the way our roads, we see a gradual change to the way our roads are used. Um, I, I frankly don't understand why... why Roadside parking is seen as a revenue raiser by councils for people parking those cars, and it's perhaps different in shopping centres and so on, where they're obviously also assisting trade. But if you've got a if you've got a flood of bicycles going past those shops, it's very similar to cars barking out the front. It doesn't take long if you've been to Copenhagen and you watch the, the stream of bicycles going up and down those streets as they come in in the morning and leave in the evening, um, there's virtually no room for vehicles on the road. Um, so I think we'll see changes in that, and we'll see, hopefully we'll also see more creativity around how we create urban open urban spaces, green, green spaces where people can get out and, um, uh, and, and less, yeah, more, more, I think we'll see more of that.
0: Thank you to Song Bowden planners who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website.
2: Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website.
0: This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at ww.1milegrid.com.au.
2: Tim, the, the importance of public open space has been really brought to the fore with this, because a lot of mm. people locked in a lockdown, they could only go for a walk to the park or something like that, and green space is incredibly good for the for the psyche and the mental well-being of people.
1: Yeah, um, yeah.
2: But a lot of our parks are sort of secondary, or that they get neglected, or or a lot of green spaces we've got in the city, there's not much density around them. Can you
1: see something yeah. happening there? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I think, uh, Peter, I've, I don't know whether I mentioned this in 2014, but the model that I think is really attractive is a model that is used in Barcelona where cars, get, cars are taken off roads and roads are turned into um, open space, urban open space. It's not always, you know... Um Faulkner Park, obviously, but it is nevertheless space that that you can circulate through and you can you can feel like you're not intimidated by vehicular traffic the whole time. And p- part of the dilemma for creating new space, new green space in inner cities, is the cost, just the sheer cost of acquiring land. It's prohibitive. And then if you add to that the cost of actually creating the park, and government agencies just can't afford that. But if you if you deal with vehicular traffic in a different way, there's, they're just huge potential assets in our roads for circulating um, space that people can run, walk with their children, um you, you, can, you can put facilities in those spaces, community centres, restaurants, cafes, places to repair your bike, fix your toaster, all that sort of stuff can be done there if we stop seeing the side of roads as um, space from which we get a rent for parking a vehicle for two or three hours.
2: Tim, I caught a, you know, a ghost tram the other day. I was the only passenger and I was doing some filming. I was going down the, the street into the, the central city. And when I got off, I waved to the tram driver and he waved back to me. It was nice having a personalised tram. But anyway, I should get on to the question. Um, is this the end of the central business district? You know, I, I went down there the other day. I've never been to Detroit, but uh, it just felt you know, everything was boarded up, shot. And there was just homeless walking around, it was it, it was a decay. Will this really puncture the CBD, do you think? And and not just our CBD, but others.
1: Well, I think, look, Peter, I, I think if you if you continue to believe in science, then someone's gonna find a vaccine. So let's assume they find a vaccine. I, I think a lot of that fear will just evaporate. And life will continue. Return to normal. They may find a vaccine that a bit like the flu shot, where they say, "Well, this will do you for twelve months. You've got to come back next twelve months' time and get a slightly slight variation on that." So that's one scenario that would, I think, quite immediately return it, turn it to what we might call normal. If there is no vaccine, and it's hard to conceive that that would be the case. Then um, <clears throat> there'll probably be that testing of fear, which is, okay, let's go back and see what happens. Everybody watch the news tonight to see whether the number of recorded cases and deaths gone up. Is there a surge or we'll pull back? And you'll just keep like a litmus test, just keep testing the waters to see what you can and can't do. And to some extent, to be fair to to governments, that's what they're doing at the moment, it's, albeit hopefully with <laughs> more advice, better technical advice than I'm giving. You.
2: No, no, Tim. But with the CBD, it's it's the the businesses down there, but it's also that all the office buildings. So yeah. if we have many more people comfortable, as you know, we were talking about before, working from home, is there going to be a need for these giant, giant pinstripe palaces in the sky?
1: Well, uh, one option for those offices, Peter, if if you're running a company of, let's say you're running a company of a hundred people and you've got you've got, I don't know, four or five floors in an office building, and half your workforce decides to work remotely. Now some of the, some of those people might work r- remotely as, as remotely as two or three hundred Ks away. So what you might do with that office is to say, well, we'll take one of these floors, we'll we'll, we'll compact the quantum of desks, et cetera, that we have. There might be more space between desks, but there might also be a floor that's just like the Japanese overnight accommodation. So you you come up from wherever you're coming from, you come down from, uh, where do do they do the lover duck?
2: Uh, Up in Nil, up in uh, Wimmera.
1: You come down from the Wimmera after you've done your consulting <laughs> services there, yes. and you go to the office, and uh, you spend a couple of days there working, and you stay in a in a you know capsule type accommodation in the office, and then you go back to, so that you don't have the expense of having to stay in a hotel or rent or buy yourself a one bedroom apartment. So that so you may see some reconfiguration of um, the nature of space. I'm sure you'll, you'll see that occur and how it'll be. There'll probably also be a need for more spaciousness between desks. There was also another article the other day about sitting in an open office and how it doesn't necessarily improve interaction and productivity. And having just gone to my new firm and overnight joined with 60 new friends. I got an insight into the consequence of that after coming from an office of 10.
0: (laughs) I think you're right, Tim. I think the the re-evaluation of space is going to be a really interesting one. I think we've already seen quite a lot of that, I think, over the last even five, ten years. I'm thinking even, you know, this idea of the co-working studios that really have come to fruition, I'd say, over the last Mm -hmm. five years, Um, and now they're everywhere. I don't think we could have imagined five years ago how many co-working spaces we would have. So I just think it's going to be really interesting to see where we land with that and what kind of, I guess, innovative ways we start yes. to use space. Yes. It's going to be interesting.
1: But I think, Jess, too, it goes back to that earlier conversation we were having where, um, in end, I don't know about you, but there's there's some work that you can do individually there's a lot of work in our arena where it's it's helpful to be able to do it collaboratively. You, you need several people sitting around the table, whether it be virtual or not, working through where you're going to take things. And if if there's less focus on regulation, less focus on does the building comply with res code? To we've got this this. Country town that is um, struggling to find employment until Peter comes along with um, with the ducks. Um, <laughs> then, what are we going to do about this? And as Peter as Peter said, you, you you need to sit around that table with an economist, with somebody who understands the way local economies work, and not just be a stat planner ticking boxes in I, risk
2: I, yeah. I, I, I can't imagine hot desks coming back soon in any way tim no uh, and uh, but social distancing no. you know threatens to disrupt what makes city work cities work you know humans love to congregate
1: and, and yeah I, I, yeah
2: and you know what is this disruption going to do to that urge to get together and that urge to get together in a lot of ways is sparks sparks creativity so much, Tim, as you know. You know, that yeah. that occasional comment, that that observation, that one plus one equals five sometimes, you know? Mm. You know, how do we how do we stop the fear? And, and, and sort of encourage people to from a from a planning sense and design sense. there's, you know, refresh stations, there's apps, there's going to be status alerts. I don't think this is going to go away, Tim. You know, the vaccines, if they do become available, we'll have to go to the front line workers. So, you know, people like us won't have them for at least a couple of years. So we're going to have to learn to live with it. It's not going to go away. You know, I'm, I'm maybe pessimistic, but how do we give confidence, you know? Is it the data again?
1: Well, well, you know, I'm I'm inclined to sort of, again, resort to the flippant and say alcohol, but um, that's... Probably, <laughs> probably not something for a podcast, Peter. Um, well, I, look, I, I agree with you. I, I I know we've all had our Zoom conferences and shared information on Zoom. Um, and it works, but I miss the it it works for me because the people that I'm dealing with, I know what they're capable of, how you know what they can do. Don't ask them things that I know they can't do. Um, so we're sort of, you know, making widgets. We've already done it once and we're just repeating the formula. For the for the challenges that you're describing, Zoom is not a great place to do that. What did you say? One plus one equals five or two plus two equals
2: five? Sorry, those revelations, those... Inspiration that uh, you know. You mentioned something. Jess talked something, and that sparks yeah. something. That triggers something there.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you can you can you can get it like this, but it's it's somehow it's never quite the same because then what also happens is, you know, you get that spark, you get an idea, you get something that starts to work, and you might want to sort of peel off. Uh, you know, come back. Start to build it, and it's very hard to do that in a Zoom conference that's forty minutes or sixty minutes because you you um, plus Tim just don't have it.
2: Plus, I think we've evolved so that we're very perceptive of people around us how their emotions are, and we're looking at yeah. each other now well, in a two-dimensional form. Yeah, Two, two-dimensional. But yeah, you know, as humans, we observe things; we almost sense things that. And we we pick confidence up from each other when we're together. Maybe, Definitely, maybe. What do you think, Jess? You're the public health uh, master's person.
0: Well, yeah, I was actually just thinking about the next question, which was around um, festivals and gatherings as well. And and if we can't do that, how do we how do we re- retain our our mental health? I mean, that's so important for social mm. connection um, and for our being. How do we how do we ensure that we still get mm. that connection?
1: Well, it it just I I honestly don't have a, a magic answer to that, but uh, I I think that it is critical. The the only thing that's happening at the moment, of course, is that you can at least congregate in small groups, which is helpful, but it's um, not a festival. And I and, and it's all very well for people to run virtual festivals and. You know, uh, have dinner parties where you're all sitting in different places and drinking some wine and eating some nice food, but it's not quite the same, is it? It's not the same as that sitting around the table um, with the repartee across the table, just, just, and as you say, we're 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 tribal, we're gregarious by by nature. So it's, a, it's quite a challenge. And uh, I'm sorry I don't have the answer for you. But
2: <laughs> t- t- Tim, the, the Spanish flu is often cited as a historical precedent. Uh, 15,000 Australians died of that in the year 1919. And at the time, the country mm-hmm. had a population of 5.3 million. So about a fifth of what we've got now. No vaccine was developed. Uh, life went on after the, at the end of the First World War and Spanish flu, into the roaring 20s, and many, many technological breakthroughs came in that time. Might Mm. might this be a precedent on how life goes on, do you think?
0: And Tim, can you please say, bring back the flap addresses? Just just
1: say that again.
0: I said, can you say, bring back the flap addresses? (laughs) Because that would be great.
1: (laughs) out in my old shed, I've got all my stuff left over from my parents and others. There's bound to be something there. I'll have a look after we finish this. Uh, finish this discussion. that <laughs> so, so,
0: do you think?
2: Do you so? Do you think that sort of bounce back in the roaring twenties might be what we go through? Do you think uh, it's possible?
1: I, I, look, I. I'd, the problem with, you know, we call it a recession or whatever's going to be, there are going to be a lot of people unemployed. And for those that don't get a job, it, it, it's devastating. You, you know, if you've ever been, if you've, and I feel particularly sorry for those that are coming out, they're coming out of uni or coming out of school, they've gone through all that education, they look around, there's nothing for them to do. That's just, that's a shocking state to be in. Um, but, if you, again, if you look at how this this country does rebuild, this country has an ability to do that. And when uh, Jeff Kennett uh, emerged in the in the early 90s, people would come down from New South Wales and Queensland and laugh at us, saying, "Oh, you're the Rust Belt state." But the country, but the state has rebuilt itself through through governments of both persuasion. And in the end it's because there ha- there was basically pretty good government but there was an energy in the community that made that happen. people saw opportunity and they took it and they were able to take it and it's not always it's not always as smooth and as easy as um, you think but I, I I just personally would not be I wouldn't be cowed or frightened by it I think you just have to do the sorts of things that you've both been talking about which is let's hear the ideas let's expose those ideas it's you know um you know give give strength to those who who want to get out there and have a crack
0: tim just picking up on one of the things you just touched on there um about the young planners or the the people that have just finished university and are trying to find jobs what What yes. advice would you give to the young planners of our industry um, coming into this really unusual time?
1: Well don't first of all, don't despair. it, it is it is it is um, uh, it's frightening, but it is it will be only momentary in in the in the scheme of your life cycle, hopefully, if you live a long life, it's not a very long period of time. I would hope that, Larger, small, and large organizations. I know that, that, that in that circumstance, we gave jobs to part time jobs to people. We said, Come and work, you know, we'd find a day's work for them each week and gradually build it. And um, uh, there, there are any number of ways in which you can find useful and challenging things for people to do if your organization gives some thought to that and I think our industry needs to do that because there need always needs to be a pipeline of new and fresh ideas imbuing the things that we do. Um, and given that you can't, may not be able to travel overseas, you can't flee on the backpackers holiday unless you just go around Australia. So we, we as an industry I think we need to give particular attention to the people that we would otherwise perhaps have had a job. We would have had a job for them.
2: Tim, with the there's been a lot of modelling and public policy that uh, has turned out not to be right on this. And personally, I think this is the biggest public plan, biggest public policy failure in Australia's history: the the lockdowns and things like that. I think we're only in the first quarter of a very long game on this one, but. Uh, What is it going to do to people's trust in government, experts and modelling in particular, if this all turns out to be wrong?
1: Well, Peter, the, the difficult thing in political leadership in moments of crisis is that you have to make choices that affect large numbers of people quickly. And they're not always the best choices. And in this period that we've just been through, there's been lots of discussion about, well, what was it like in the war? What happened in the war? And if you take that as an example, decisions were made politically, particularly by the Allies, about how they were going to deal with, with aggression, with, with, with other countries' aggression. And there were a lot of crazy, stupid decisions made, a lot of lives lost lost as a consequence of it. But in the end, people will look back on that period as one of horror, but, you know, the Allies won. So even if we look back on this as um, some decisions were made, were made badly with bad consequences, I suspect for Australia, the way we're going in Australia, it will be an economic consequence and if you think that we've, we've, we're a country rich in resources, we are rich in resources, mineral and otherwise, but we're also rich intellectually. We, we, we have good people, good brains in this country. You just need to let them loose and, and, and you can rebuild an economy but you don't sort of try to say if you're dead, you don't care if you've got an economy or not. It doesn't matter um so i i i think that um you, you know if you look back you look back at the the way people reviewed uh, people like Churchill Peter, and jess and uh, some of the generals who led large battles in in the second world war, and it's very easy in hindsight to be critical of them, but they had to make decisions in the heat of the moment invariably and um as I say, they're not—they're not always going to make the right one. Frankly, I'm—I'm I'm ex- absolutely delighted to be living in Australia in this moment, and not some other country. Um, because perhaps you, you, I know you want to go to New Zealand, Peter. Cause you there's no Europe way I want to
2: go to New Zealand, Tim. <laughs> 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 Nothing about our Kiwi friends that there's no—there's no way I want to go. I'm live there but uh tim now on to podcast extra now when you did uh when you did planning exchange two we didn't have podcast extra so this is where you describe something you're watching listening to or reading that might be of interest to the our listeners
1: well pete look um i'm not a great fan of television i can't find much of it that i really like so i don't watch much television uh, what I'm watching is the sunrise every morning, and being slightly older than you, I give thanks every morning when I see it rise. It comes up over an inlet, full of bird life, and in the cold mornings, mists rise off it, and it's fantastic. I love it. So that's what I'm watching. Um, what I'm I'm reading? I'm reading several books. I, I have a. I drive my partner mad because I've got books everywhere. You might not see it in the back here in this library, but there are books everywhere. So I have a set of books which I dip into. Like, oh my God, COVID nineteen. We better become, you know, self self sustaining here. I better get out and plant some vegetables. So I've got a book on companion planting in the hope that that will accelerate my productive skills. Pete can't say it's been all that successful, but I dip in and out to see, you know, why basil goes well with tomatoes. And then I've got another uh, another book that I'm reading about the. Um, the Kennedy Curse, as I did uh, did some, you know, Kennedy was seminal in my early life, uh, and then another one by Arnold Zabel, is it or Zabel, which is four stories really about his his well, his time in China, but it's also about uh, uh, the difficulties that small communities have um, faced uh, in their lives. The Stoicism. Uh, I'm only, I'm, only, I'm into the first story at the moment. So they're quite good. And then there's a few others that hang around. Um, there's another one uh, called um, Back from the Brink, which is about um, a guy who used the sort of thinking that you use, Peter, uh, which is to get out there and see things from the other side and who brought a new form of, of new attitude to the uh, use of agriculture. You probably enjoy it. Have you read it?
2: No, no I haven't, Tim. But uh, I do like agriculture. And, and, and Jess, what have you now, been? What have you been doing? Uh, reading or watching or listening
0: to? I was just to? enjoying. Tim, we'll was just enjoying Tim's description of you. <laughs> I was enjoying your description of Peter. Then. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it's great,
2: it's great being Peter, I've
0: actually got a couple of recommendations, which I know is going to surprise you Um, because often I'm struggling to think of something different that I have been doing over the last month. But uh, the first one is gardening. I've been doing a lot of gardening and um, propagating uh, different things. I've been um, doing quite a lot with succulents and, um, yeah, propagating monstera's as well, which has been a bit of fun. The other thing I've been doing is making bread. Um, I haven't got into the sourdough, which I know a lot of people are um, on about at the moment, but the New York Times has an amazing recipe um, called no need bread, actually. So it takes literally about two minutes to do. You let it sit for about 18 hours, and then you mix it all up and put it in the oven, and it produces a wonderful loaf of bread. So I'm very much enjoying that. And then my third one is a book that I've just started uh, called Bruni by um, Heather Rose. So it's about Bruni Island down in Tasmania.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. know of
0: it? Oh, you read it? Yeah, I've read oh, it. Oh, Good. I've literally book. just started yeah. it, and I was just saying to Pete earlier, um, everyone. Oh, you've got it there? Oh, good. Oh no, no, th- this Trigunini. is
1: this is Pat ah. Truganini. It's it's a, it it. I mean, the book you're reading is yeah. fiction, sort of. Truganini's not, and I started. To, sorry, no, no Vanessa, I'm cutting cutting you off. But I started to read it just as the virus broke, and I thought I just it's uh, I just can't <laughs> read this book. I've only read the first chapter and put it down. I thought I have to yeah, wait. Yeah,
0: definitely. For that. Well, this is actually a book club book um, that I'm doing with a couple of friends, and ever since it was suggested, I feel like every second person is talking about this book. So I'm only about a chapter in, but I'm intrigued to read it anyway. What about you, Pete?
2: Uh, just in these dystopian times, I, I'm thinking a lot about 1984 and uh, just the way, uh, you know, the media is uh, can can take a view and be very strong on that and just all our liberties are being taken away in, in different ways and I, I know there's a big discussion about that but to escape all that I've been um, uh, collecting gum, gum nuts and uh, been planting them out in seeds when they Eventually, come out. You put them in a little brown paper bag, and about three or four weeks later, all the little seeds appear. And I'm hoping to do like a lot of planting later on, late winter, spring, with the seedlings that I'm growing. They're all indigenous to the place that I've got. So I've been doing planting, I've been out with a chainsaw, getting rid of noxious trees and things like that. So just getting outdoors and, and, and taking my mind off. And, and just, you'll be happy to know I found a new prayer, which is good. So that's helping me get through it at night time. As well. Good to hear. An old Celtic, an old Celtic prayer. So, um, but uh, anyway, so so we wrap it up there. What do you think?
1: Yeah, def- Yeah, that's good. Well, Pete, you should read. You should read this one, "Back from the Brink," by Peter Andrews. You, 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 you'd you'd like this book? Jess would like this book too.
2: All right. I'll, I'll, I'll come and have a look at it. Okay, yeah. when we yeah. all get together when when we can all get together. So, Tim, thank you so much for. Uh, Again, joining our podcast—it's been a—it's been a delight, and it's been a delight ever since I first met you in second year uni. Uh, you've instructed me along the along the course, and I'm I'm always grateful. And you keep me even. So, and Jess, <laughs> always great to work with you, of course. So, thanks very much, listeners, and uh, we hope you're all taking care and looking after yourself, listeners. So,
1: thanks very much. It's a pleasure. Can I? Can I? They they can't see you on the podcast, but. Uh, Jess is looking as if she's really benefited from uh, <laughs> lockdown because she's looking very serene and very relaxed. That gardening must be doing a pair of good. And, and, and Peter, you seem to have become, you know, I can see with that uh, all those trees in the background, you have just sort of becoming, uh, you know, the father of rural Australia and uh, comfortable in your own skin. But don't get too comfortable because you've got to keep keep, you know, pushing the boundaries and, and, and pushing the edge Keeping of Keeping us things. all on our toes. It, it, even old buggers <laughs> like me. Tim, Tim I'm <laughs> blushing. That's enough, please. Right.
2: Thank you, listeners. Goodbye. Thank okay. you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jess. Bye.
1: See you later. Bye.